previously on The God-Shaped Heart. Let's look at two different views of God's law. One is design law. Design law, it's the way God has constructed all reality to function based on His perfect knowledge and love. Design law is the only way life can work. In other words, God says do certain things or don't do certain things, not because they're arbitrary, not because He's all-powerful, because He knows there's only one way life can work so that with free individual beings, all exercising their free will, wanting to have the happiest life possible, there's only one way life can work. And that's what God calls His laws. This is imposed law. Imposed law is what we're, we're most used to. It's, uh, you know, where a society, a government, gets a bunch of people together, some legislators, and they, they kind of figure out, well, this is what we think will make society better, safer, and they make up some laws. Man-made rules enforced by the threat of punishment. They're not the only way life can work. They're, they're fallible, in other words, and they're not inevitable and inescapable. Well, this is the last message in this little mini-series. It's the third message. And uh, each week I've advertised a book, and I guess we have a slide for that. Uh, perhaps we do. There it is. The series is based on this book. I, I've rarely ever done anything like this, nor have I rarely, um, it's been rare that I've asked everyone to consider buying the book and reading it. I think we have some more copies in our store. We've sold out each week, but you can get it, you know, online yourself. Um, it, it's not altogether an easy read, but it's really, really worth your time and effort. Now, let me add one thing. I feel like I'm a little shy on my volume. Is my soft sounding out there to you, or can you hear me okay? All right. Um, because the book has some parts in it that uh, require some thought and maybe some explanation, we're going to run a Bible Institute in 2019. I haven't run a Bible Institute for about two years or so, I think. So this will be maybe an eight, nine-week session where we'll gather in here on one night. We'll, we'll announce it well in advance. I'll go through the book. I'll go through some of the uh, parts of it that are a little more difficult to understand. It allows you to ask questions. How many have ever been to a Bible Institute before? Let me see your hands. Okay, so you know what the format is like. I mean, we're in here. It's an hour and a half straight teaching. It allows for interaction and questions answered and all that kind of thing. So uh, it will probably be around springtime from what we're saying. So if you're reading the book and you find some parts in it difficult or even controversial based on some things that you've learned in your earlier Christian life, uh, hang tight. Of course, you can always ask the questions on Tuesdays. We answer questions uh, live Tuesday at 12. But then we'll do this Bible Institute. We'll go through it very thoroughly. All right. Last message we want to get into, the God-shaped heart. What I want to do today is something a little bit different. I, I think for this to make the most sense, I want to take you back and give you a picture, what is God's overarching plan? I mean, what is his eternal plan and purpose? So many times in churches, the, we get this notion that God's only plan is a transportation plan. He's just trying to get some people to mouth some ideas about himself so that he can have the legal right to transport us to heaven. All you hear about in a lot of churches is going to heaven, going to heaven, going to heaven. Everything is about dying and going to heaven. How, how many here would rather hear a little bit more about living instead of dying and going to heaven? Yeah. So... Didn't God have a better, bigger plan than just that? And of course he does. We spent a whole series uh, unpacking this before, but, but here's the tight little statement 
that we came out with. And this is straight from Scripture. This is what God is doing. This is how it's all going to end in the future forever. Here's the statement. God's big plan. Whoa. Uh -oh. <laughs> I forgot my little carrier. There it is. God's big plan is the development of an eternal family of what kind of beings? Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to Christ and one another. That's simple. That's tight. That's what the Bible reveals. Now, if we can leave that up here for a second, how is this going to happen? Because to get this future universe of Christ-like beings, which is necessary, it's the only way eternal life can really work so that everybody is happy and safe and fulfilled and, and reaches their highest well-being and happiness. You have to have a universe filled with Christ-like beings. But how does that happen? How do you take humans and turn them into Christ-like beings? Okay, how do you take the angels? We, we know in the scripture teaches that two-thirds of the angels have stayed loyal to God, but they too are in a developmental journey just as we, you, we are. All finite beings are in a developmental journey. But humans, how does that happen? Let, let's think of it this way. When we ask the question, how is it that God's kingdom, because this is what we pray for, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. When God's kingdom finally comes in its fullness and the universe is filled with these Christ-like beings and so forth, uh, what is God's rule over the universe? What, what is that going to be like? I mean, how many methods of rule does God have? If the universe needs God's rule to be safe and to be happy, what are the possible ways he can rule? Well, number one, he's all-powerful, so he could rule by force. He could just plain automat, you know, turn us into automatons, robotize us, and just make us do what he wants us to do. But that would be a pretty dull universe. The, the other thing that God could do is he could use fear. He could make it aware that if we ever disobeyed him in any way, shape, or form, we would immediately be extinguished. You know, we would just go out of existence. And that would scare us sufficiently that we might, you know, straighten up and fly right. But that wouldn't be very satisfactory. We free-willed beings, we don't like to be, live in fear. We can't relate to somebody. We can't like somebody. We can't love somebody that we're afraid of. So listen to this carefully. There's only one possible condition, only one possible way that God can rule, and all the people that he rules over like it, feel wonderful about it, <clears throat> love him authentically, only one way. And that's the way that we read in Scripture. It's the one condition, the singular condition that God says, this is the condition for what we church people, we, we like these words like salvation, you know, so one condition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, one and only one condition for salvation is possible because it's the way that God is going to rule and reign forever and ever. And it's not force. It's not fear. It is faith or trust, which means God is going to so reveal himself to us to be trustworthy, all-loving, sacrificially loving, that he will win the confidence, trust, reliance, faith of some of us. And he's very realistic and he's very honest in his word. He doesn't say that he'll win the confidence, trust, reliance, faith of all of us. But he knows that he'll win 
the confidence, trust, reliance, faith of some of us. And those some will be the ones that inhabit eternity. And because eternity will be full of these Christ-like beings, we will be transformed. Once we turn to Christ our creator in trust, God starts this transforming process in us, or at least he wants to start a transforming process in us that ends with us being actually Christ-like in our character, still distinctly ourselves, our unique personality that God's given, but a Christ-like version. So that's how that happens. And this leads us to uh, a verse that we've shared each week, almost every week, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. It says, then we will be, what is the word? Mature. mature. But what is being mature? What is a full-grown, mature human being look like? What does it look like when I'm fully human and fully alive, when I'm exactly the being that God created me to be. What will I look like? Then they will be mature just as, what does it say? Christ, Christ is. And we will be completely what? That's your destiny. That's the destiny of every human being. When God started creation with full knowledge that some free moral agents, both angels and humans, would reject him, reject his love, and would be impossible to ever win over, he still knew there would be two-thirds of the angels that would stay loyal and many humans that can be reached, that would be reached, and they would be his eternal family ultimately. That's where it all ends. Now, the big question for you and I, the big question for you and I, we got to start thinking different in church. Well, it's not, am I going to heaven? That's, that's the way we think. It's like, okay, the, the, main, the main thing, man, you got to make sure when, when your eyes close in death and your heart stops beating, you best make sure that elevator is not going down. That elevator is going up. You have paid your price. You got your ticket. You're on your way to heaven. This is, you would think in some churches that's all the Bible teaches. How many have been in churches like that? Just curious. Every Sunday it's like how to get saved, how to get saved. Just curious. Let me see your hands on it. Yeah, if you've been in a Baptist church, you know that's what it's like. I, I, I'm ordained Baptist. I know these things. <laughs> But God's got this big, beautiful, comprehensive plan. And the center of it is your and my transformation in this life to be beautiful people, stunningly beautiful, just like Christ. Unselfish people, giving people, serving people. People that cause others to say, wow, what, what is the deal with that person? And we get that opportunity to say, oh, what the deal is, it's, it's my creator that's working inside me, motivating me, changing me. And that's what the Christian life was meant to be like. So here's what it comes down to. For this transformation to take place in your life and my life, and this is critical because some of us in this room, I'm going I'm to say some things to you today that you're not going to be, be really comfortable with. Some of us in this room, maybe, maybe, just possibly, we have called ourselves Christians for many years. We thought of ourselves as Christians for many years, maybe decades. Maybe we've been churchgoers, loyal churchgoers for many years, decades. How many know that if you lived in a doghouse for 20 years, it would not make you a dog? How many know that? Can I see your hands? All right. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. But real Christians go to church. <laughs> I want to add that. So here's the key. Only mature motivation can bring true what? We've been talking in this series about a way to diagnose the condition of our heart. And we mean by that our truest self inside. And the key simple way to diagnose the true shape of our heart 
is by what our core moral motivation actually is. Doesn't matter what we say, doesn't matter what we think, it's what is our core moral motivation. And each week I've shown you this list. Here it is. And when you read that book, you will find these things laid out very clearly and discussed very thoroughly. Some of us are reward and punishment motivated. That's our core moral motivation. Some of us are marketplace exchange. God, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Some of us are social conformity. We look around and we see what others are doing and we just kind of let that govern our, our moral motivation. Some of us are in law and order. It's like, what are the rules? Just show me the rules. I want to live by the rules. I want to get the creator off my back and on my side. I want him to owe me. I don't want to owe him. I just want to know what the rules are. None of these four will ever, you really have to hear this, will ever result in transformation of character. Some of you need to think that one through because you maybe consider yourself a Christ follower for a long, long time, a lot of years, but you know in your heart of hearts, you are not changing inside. You might be changing some things outside where people can observe and notice, but you know yourself maybe you're not changing inside. Your thoughts, your vision of people, your reaction to circumstances, your feelings toward life, your feelings toward people, they are not becoming more and more like Jesus. They are staying the same. Some of us for many, many years are utterly, utterly unchanged. But we consider ourselves Christians. Well, it's possible. It's possible. We could be. We could be because we might be what Scripture calls a baby Christian, and that means we're still somewhat motivated by these first four levels. Okay? Today we're going to talk about the last three, and they kind of work together. These will actually transform you. Listen to me. They can't help but to transform you. They change you from the inside out. They change your views. They change your beliefs. They change your feelings. They change your values. They really change the structure of your very brain. Your neural pathways become different. You are transformed truly. And here's what these five mature motivators are. Love for others. Principle-based living. Principle-based living just means, and I'm going to elaborate on this, it just means I just simply do something because it's right. It's intrinsically worthy to be done. It's right, so I do it. And then finally, an understanding friend of God. I really know who he is. I know what he's like. I know what his plans are. I know what his purposes are. And all I want to do, all I want to do is be a part of what he's doing. Now, these last three, let me tell you something from my own experience. They can develop... Uh, at different times in different ways. I shared with you in the very first message this uh, experience with me about a year and a half, two years in my Christian experience. Um, I wondered why does God want us to obey him all the time? I asked him that and I found within a week or two a verse called Deuteronomy 5.29. It says, Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would obey me always and keep all my commandments always so that it may be well with them. Well, that turned the lights on for me. I finally realized that God wants us to obey because he loves us. He knows what's best for us and wants what's best. Well, that freed me up. Prior to that, I was really kind of motivated, though I trusted in Christ like a mustard seed trust. I was really motivated mostly by reward and punishment. I didn't know it at the time. But what happened, and this is what you want to get you to, I jumped at that point from this level to this level now. I'm not talking about Mr. Perfect here. Let me tell you the rest of the story. So becoming an understanding friend of God was immediately comfortable for me. 
It was years later that I started developing a principle-based motivation. That came years later. Oh, I'm just going to do this because it's truth and it's right and it always should be done. Now, the worst part of the confession, I'm still working on this one. I'm still developing. It's taken me years. I'm still, I, I, I have this propensity to be self-centered. And it's hard for me to think and get into the skin of others, even though it's such a large part of my job. So I'm saying all that to say to you, you might come into this level, this, this level of mature motivation in different forms and phases. Don't feel bad. Let me go further. You may be at one of these levels. You actually trust Christ, but you're still mostly motivated by this. That's okay, but please don't stay there because you won't experience the transformation that God wants you to experience and you will not be the force on this planet for Christ and good that you can be and that God wants you to be. All right, let me look, let's look at some scripture real quick and we'll unpack these three levels. Verse we've used in other weeks from the book of Ephesians chapter five of the New Testament. Since you are God's dear children, you must try to be like him. Notice it's not automatic. We must care enough. We must want to be like him. It goes on. Your life must be controlled by, there's the key word. What is it? Love. Just as Christ loved us. So love of others is one of these mature motivators. I'm doing what I'm doing because I care about you. I want to understand you. I want to serve you. I want to bless you. I want to build you up. I'm not interested in anything for myself. I just want to do you good. I want to do the highest good I can for you. That's love. Let's look at a second motivator. This is principle. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. The key phrase is we must work for the what? The good of all. That's principle-based living. I, I'm just going to do this or I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to impart good in this world. I want others to receive good. I want good to grow. Our world needs it. It's intrinsically worthy. It's beautiful. It's right. And so I'm motivated just to do good. There's other passages in Scripture that says that, that God in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, that Jesus especially wants a people who are eager to do what is good. All right, third principle of, of mature motivation, and that's friends of God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. By the way, he was in jail when he wrote this. He didn't know if he was going to be executed or not. He says, I expect and hope that I will not fail Christ in anything that will have, excuse me, I expect and hope that I will not fail Christ in anything, that I will have the courage now, as always, to show the greatness of Christ in my life here on earth, whether I, what? Live or die. Listen, listen to this guy just pouring out his heart. He, he's saying, the only thing that really matters to me, I just want every second of my life, every year of my life, I want people to know the greatness of Christ. It's the best gift that I can give. They need to know their creator. Their creator has been lied about. Satan lied about him in the Garden of Eden. He's been lying about him ever since, saying that, oh, he's all about power. He's all about control. He's all about fear. No. He is sacrificial love embodied. He is utterly good. We can never do anything better for ourselves or anybody else than to bring them to trust in Christ, our creator, and to follow him fully and freely and forever. 
So here's these three mature moral motivators. Love for others, principle, it's simply right, and thirdly, I now am just a friend and a companion and a co-worker and a servant with my God. I just want him to find in me, in my life, availability uh, to do what he wants to do, the good that I know he wants to do in the world. So these are, these are mature motivators. But the question comes, why is it that the first four forms of motivation cannot, will not transform character, but these last three will? You see, here's the common, the common thread. In the first four, they are all still self-centered. If I'm doing things for reward and punishment, or if I'm doing things for marketplace, you know, trade-off, uh, if I'm doing things to stay by the rules, if I'm doing things to conform to the crowd, I'm doing this stuff all for me. It's still all about me. I'm saving my own skin or trying to gain the most gratification and pleasure that I can. It's still all about me. And everybody that's at level one through four constantly needs coercion, needs supervision, needs incentive, uh, incentives to keep them going. They can't be trusted. Levels one and four, I can't, you can't be trusted to stay faithful to God and his word. We always need coercion. We always need threats. We always need rewards dangling in front of us. We always need supervision, somebody watching us. That's the truth. Why? Because we haven't changed inside. It's all outside. It's all still about us. Levels five through seven, my love for others, my devotion to God's truth, principle, my complete absorption with wanting to cooperate with God, to be his friend and his servant, these all can only happen from inside. And they, they cause a motivation. We always use the terms, or we, or we sometimes in, in business where we use the terms of somebody, we say that person is self-motivated. Self-motivated people tend to do well in life, in the work world, and that's what happens here. We become motivated from the inside out. Now, I want to take some time and uh, really unpack this for you so you can see all the interior dynamics that cause real transformation with these mature levels of motivation as opposed to the others that are forever deficient. Let me share a verse to just get us started in this thought from Psalm 119. Listen to what the affection that is expressed here. The psalmist, he says, Oh, how I love and treasure the revelation of your word. Throughout the day, I fill my heart with its light. It goes on. Your instructions are a doorway through which light shines. They give insight to the untrained. Can I go back to the first slide? I want to make a point on something. Oh, how I, what is the word? Love and treasure. This guy's just telling you what he feels. How many of you have a certain dessert that you love? Can I just see your hands? Okay. Nobody makes you, right? You just, you taste it and you love it. This guy, this psalmist is saying, when it comes to something that I love, I love God's word. I treasure it. I put it at the top of my values. It's more important to me, he's saying, than anything. I actually love it. Don't know about you. I love it. 
Do you see how different that is? So because he loves it, he went on to say, you know, I'm in it all the time. It's a doorway through which God's light shines and he gives me instruction and all these kinds of things. But he's doing this not because of some exterior pressure. Oh, man, I know he's supposed to read that Bible. Okay, here we go, God. There it is. You saw, I read it today for two minutes. And No, man, it's cake. It's ice cream. It's like, I want this thing. I love it. It turns on the light. It shows me the truth about God, the truth about life, the truth about myself, the truth about others. It shows me why things are as they are in this world. It shows me who I am, how to live, where I'm going, what's going to happen at the end of it all. I mean, I, he says, I love it. You see the interior motivation. Do you see the spontaneity of it? It resonated. He read it. It resonated with him. It grabbed his affection. There's a spontaneity about this, and it's a self-motivating kind of a thing. Now, I'm going to take you through something. I, I developed something this week. I, I hope this will be helpful. We're, we're going to kind of work it again in another series that I'm getting ready to do. In fact, the next series, I'm going to work this through again. But uh, I put together this little chart. You can pick it up on the outside in the auditorium or the lobby when you go out if, if you think it's useful. But it'll be brought up again. But I, but I want you to try to understand what actually happens inside of a person, first of all, that is truly converted, and by that I mean truly becomes a Christian, and then how that person experiences actual transformation. All right, here's how it goes. All right, first of all, it starts with revelation, and I'm going I'm to break these down, don't worry, and the revelation uh, in other words, that's just God's word, God's truth coming to us. It brings illumination. The lights go on. We see life differently. Then we come to a pivotal fork in the road. Inspiration. Does it inspire us or does it make us want to run from it? Rejection. If it inspires us, it then moves to motivation. I now want this. I want to do this. And that leads to actual life change, habituation. I'm going to put this into practice in every single area of my life. And if you stick with that, it eventually brings real transformation. Let me unpack it now. Let me unpack it now. There we go. <laughs> Revelation. It's simply God-given new information. It's information that you and I could not get. The Creator has to give it to us. We could not get it. So he gives us this new information. We find this new information primarily by observing creation. We know by observing creation that the creator is brilliant and complex and orderly and so forth. But we find it more so in Christ because he is the creator in a human form that we can observe and understand. And then we have the expanded view of Christ in the rest of the Bible. That's God's revelation preserved and passed on for us. So there's the revelation God offers us. Some of us take it, some of us are uninterested. If we take it in, it brings illumination. Here's what that means. I see life differently from God's expanded eternal perspective. Most people are just living uh, time-bound, sense-governed, driven by the fear of death. We get into God's word, it turns on the light. We start seeing ourselves and life very differently from an eternal perspective. Death is not the end. Death is just the beginning. So revelation leads to illumination and then the pivotal fork in the road. Does it inspire us? When we find out what God says about life, does it excite us? Do, do, does it arouse affection in us? Do, do we like what we find? That's a pivotal fork, man. I'm telling you, that's a pivotal experience. 
I like what I see. It resonates. I'm moved. I'm excited. I'm positively energized by what I find him revealing in his word. Or I'm not. And I say, I'm not interested. All things considered, I'm just not interested. And I, I walk away. That, that is the pivotal point. And that is where conversion happens or doesn't happen. Let me go to my next slide. Matthew 18, 3, you must not ignore this verse. I assure you, this is Jesus talking, he said, unless you are, what is the word? Converted. That means becoming a Christian, becoming a Christ follower. Unless you are converted and become like children, meaning we have to be teachable and humble, we have to learn this life from our creator Christ, unless you become like little children, you will never what? But Randy, Randy, I prayed a prayer, man. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I said, oh, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need you to save me. Come save me. Oh, Randy, Randy, I prayed a prayer, and I asked Jesus, come into my heart. Oh, Jesus, come, are you in there yet, Jesus? Uh, come, in, come into my heart. I don't feel anything yet. Uh, change me from the inside as though he does this magically without our cooperation. Uh, I came to an altar. I went to a Billy Graham crusade. I came to an altor. Um, you, you know, I, 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 I've mouthed the thought that I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. And, um, and you know, what else can you I called Jesus Lord. It says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I said, Jesus, you're Lord. You're Lord. Listen, let me get really serious with you. Here's what I know. I, I, I've been following Jesus for 44 years now. No, is that right, 44 45, 45 years now. Most of the time I've been a Christian leader. You're going to hate what I'm going to say, but you're going to find that it's biblical. When the disciples pinned Jesus down and they said, Lord, are there many that be saved? He said, no. He said, few. He said, remember, the path is narrow and, and, the, and the way is narrow and there's few that find it that leads to life, but there's it's a broad path, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, and many there are there on the goes to de destruction. Here's what is true. Churches are full of people that think they're Christians and they're not. Let me make that more clear. Churches are full of people who think they're headed to heaven. They got their ticket. They're not. Churches are full of people that are not actually converted. They think they're saved. I don't know what the heck they think they're saved from. Usually they just think they're saved from the penalty of sin because they've mouthed something. Oh, I believe Jesus paid for my sins, so now I'm free. Churches are full of people that think they're safe and secure and they're deceived. And Jesus said that in Matthew 7. He said, he said in Matthew 7, 21, he said, you know, there's going to be all these people to come before me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do many things in your name and, and cast out demons and do many wonderful works? And Jesus says, depart from me, you that practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Never knew you. Can we go back to that verse? Let it sink in. If it troubles you, let it trouble you. It'll be the best trouble you ever had. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted, changed from the inside. I'm going to show you what that change in, in, you know, takes in. And become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If that troubles you, let it trouble you. It's good to be troubled now rather than troubled later. I'd rather trouble you. Listen to a quote from a man named Dan O'Reilly in a book called Predictably Irrational. 
He says, most of us are masters at deceiving ourselves and justifying our actions. In particular, we often make our decisions based not on what's right, but on what we want. But there is something to be said for what we want. You see, conversion is about what do I want. When I receive God's truth and it illuminates me, does it inspire me? Do I say, I like it, it excites me, I want it. In other words, let me be really clear. When we get God's truth, we say, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to be part of a world where everybody loves like you. And I want to be like you. And I'm going to pursue this because I want to be like you. I trust you. And I want to follow you. And I want to do your will. And I want to live your way. I don't really care if anybody else is. You have won my heart. You have won my trust. That. And nothing less than that. Nothing less is real conversion. You say, Randy, are you saying, man, you got to earn your, your salvation? you got to work for your salvation, Randy? No, no. Well, God comes telling us we are all in desperate need of his rescue. We all are broken people. We have broken ourselves by breaking his laws. We, you can call what you want. We sin. We're sinful. We're sin sick, whatever term floats your boat. And we need rescue, but God comes and says, I am totally forgiving. Forgiveness is open to you. It's yours. Will you just come back to me? I'm your father. I love you. Will you trust me? Put your trust in me. Follow me, says Jesus. And if you're willing, and if I'm willing to do that, well, then this transformation process can start. And by the way, heaven is a place for people that are prepared to be there. Some of you, perhaps, I hope this isn't true, but some of you perhaps have this thought in your head that you can kind of live loose and do anything you want in this life as long as you mouth some truths about Jesus or you ask him in your heart or some flimsy, ridiculous thing like that. And you think you can pretty much just go fast and loose. And then at the end of it all, he's going to zap you. You know, when you're dead and gone, he's going to zap you and transform you. And so you really don't need to, to work, you know, on working out your salvation here, even though the scripture says we're supposed to. We don't have to really cooperate with God on growing and being transformed here. That really doesn't matter because he's going to zap you when, when you're dead. man. Why work so doggone hard now, Randy? When you're dead, he's going to just completely transform you. Some of you think that. And you are wrong. You are deceived. You, you don't know what this book teaches. It doesn't teach that anywhere. So this is one of these come to Jesus moments, folks. <laughs> it really is. So let me go back to that chart. If God's word inspires us, it excites us, it gives positive energy, we like what we see, we love it, we turn to Christ, we put our trust in him, we become his follower, then motivation is the next step. I want to partake of the life of Christ. I want to be like him. I pursue him. I pursue his righteousness. And I want to possess this new life. That's motivation that kicks in. And then the proof of motivation or the proof of inspiration and motivation is habituation. I determine, notice that, I, I determine this. I make up my mind and I keep making up my mind every single day for the rest of my life. I make up my mind, I determine to bring each area of my life under the influence of his truth. Let me just dumb that down. It means when Jesus says stop doing something, I stop it. When Jesus says start doing something, I start it. And I don't do it because I'm afraid of him. I don't do it because I'm looking for a reward. I do it because I trust him completely. And I know that he wants what's best, knows what's best, loves me more than I could ever love myself. And then, finally, that leads to 
transformation. My core moral motivation is formed around this truth. My beliefs, my values, my decisions and feelings are being progressively modified by this truth. This comes from the level of desire. Check out your desires because that's where you can find your true self. And that's where you can find out if you are converted. Do you trust Christ? Do you love him? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to obey God's word? Are you excited every time you learn something new in scripture? Even though it might say, man, you've got to change your whole life. You've been doing this thing for your whole life. And now it says, don't do that because it's bad for you. Do you get excited and say, wow, Lord, thank you. I'm glad. I'm going to stop that. And then you read something. He says, I want you to start learning this, developing that, considering others. You're like, wow, okay, here we go. It's all like that. So there, there's the cycle. And these are all things, follow me now, they come from the inside. I'm not doing this because anybody's making me. Nobody's cursing me. Nobody's supervising me. Nobody's watching me, threatening me, forcing me. I'm doing this because Jesus has won my trust, my confidence, and now I am motivated, sincerely motivated from the inside out. And that and that alone brings real character transformation. My core motivation is now my love for others. I'm devoted to the principle of God's word. I'm just going to do it because God says it's right and it's good. I'm doing it because I'm a friend of God. I love him and he, he loves me. Those come from the inside and those transform. Let me share a scripture with you from the book of Hebrews. It says, for, for although... The, the writer of Hebrews is writing to people that maybe in some cases have been Christ followers for 30 or more years. This was written around 67 AD, about three years before the temple would be destroyed. Anyway, he says, for although by this time you ought to be, what? Teachers. You need someone to teach you the very first principles of God's word all over again. You need what? Milk, milk not solid food. It goes on. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a what? Baby. Elsewhere in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 or 3, Paul talks about people that are babies still in Christ. It's okay. At least you're born. <laughs> you're a baby, but you need to grow. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a baby without experience. Now, this is the, how do we know what, what is an immature Christ follower? Without experience in doing what? Applying, Applying the word, meaning how should I take this truth that I've learned and put it into practice in my life? It means the person that's not regularly doing that, exercising their God-enlightened reason to figure out how to do that, they are not growing. They're babies. They need do this, don't do that. They need right and wrong. They need everything just laid out. But solid food is for the mature. We've read earlier, mature is the person that's really becoming like Christ. For those whose faculties have been trained, trained by what? What has trained these spiritual faculties? By continuous what? Exercise. Exercise to distinguish good from evil. Listen, you can't be a Christian. You, you, you won't be transformed. You won't be the kind of being that God created you to be, nor do the things that you are uh, intended by God to do unless you become self-aware. And you have the capacity for that. It seems foreign to some of us. Some, some of us, you know, somebody said, well, well, what are you feeling right now? How, how many know that we men have trouble with, with understanding what's going on inside? We don't know our feelings. Can you, can you, ladies, can you agree with that? You ask a guy, well, what, what do you mean? What are you feeling? I don't know. But <laughs> because we're made in the image of God, the light can go on. 
And we can become greatly self-aware. And we must become self-aware before we can become aware of others, what's going on potentially in their minds. The mature person is exercising these moral faculties. What would be the right thing to do? What would be the best thing? What would be the loving thing? What would be good? I'm analyzing what's going on in me. What am I motivated by? I'm analyzing what's going on in you. You say, man, that sounds like hard work. That gives me a stinking headache, Randy, just thinking about it. That's because your faculties are not developed, right? You adults do things easily that a baby cannot do or a small child might struggle to do. But because you're an adult, you do them easily. It's as we get used to this, it grows. We get stronger at it. Can I go back to that last part about we, we grow by the exercise of these faculties? I'm sure there it is. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by continuous exercise to distinguish good from evil. This, this is how we experience real development and transformation. One more time from Philippians. We need that ongoing discernment. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment. I might have a loving, good intention for somebody, but I need knowledge. I need discernment. What would really be for their highest well-being and happiness as God sees it? It's an it's a interior awareness that needs to grow exponentially, and the good news is it can. It, it has nothing to do with intellect, nothing whatsoever. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you, not to be insulting, but some folks that have a lesser intellect are better at becoming spiritually minded than those with a higher intellect, in my opinion. People with a higher intellect stumble around with pride and and they get, they get stuck in their head and, and a lot of big fancy ideas that probably don't help anybody or anything. I'm not saying it's bad to have a good IQ. I'm just saying humble people, simpler people, frankly, do this easier. So this interior development, this real spiritual mindedness, it's a necessary part of spiritual growth. And it won't give you a headache. And you can do it. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And the more truly transformed will you be all right i want to close with a kind of an unusual thing i've actually shared this once before but hopefully you don't remember it or you didn't see it when i shared it before but even if you do it's so good you'll like it a second time uh, take it in and then i'll make some closing comments These people lived on a landfill, and from the landfill, trash, other people's trash, uh, in the right hands, 
people that, that had some talent, they constructed instruments. I don't know if you detected that. Every instrument that you saw there, it's called the land, this group is called the Landfill Harmonic. They've traveled all over the world sharing their music, playing their instruments. All the instruments are made from trash. And beautiful music comes forth from them. Randy, are you saying we're all trash? <laughs> No, no. No, but what I am saying is this. We're all pretty ordinary. And placed in the right hands, the hands of Jesus, our creator, he'll take these hearts of ours, he'll take these lives of ours that can be pretty ordinary, and he will do such an amazing thing first in us and then through us, that it will be stunning. He will repurpose us. Uh, that landfill, they repurposed the things they found and turned them into beautiful instruments. God wants to make of us instruments of his love, instruments of his good news, instruments of his kindness, his generosity, his peace. He wants to repurpose us if we really place ourselves in his hands and let him shape our hearts to be like his heart. I ache. After all these years, I ache to have the heart of Jesus. Nobody's making me. I'm not scared of punishment. I see the beauty, and I know it's the only kind of heart that can exist in the universe where people can really be loved and safe and live together forever the way that we all deep inside want to. Here's my first question for you. You've got to settle this one, man. Please don't shrug this one off if you have the slightest doubt. Are you really converted? You, you, you know, you don't get many opportunities like this where somebody's as blunt as I've been with you. Are you really converted? Or are you just Christian in name only? If you're not changing from the inside. Let that be a red flag warning. Something, something's, not, something's not adding up because when a person's really converted, that starts on the inside and it keeps on dynamically continuing from the inside. I, I now trust Jesus and because I trust him, I seek him. And because I seek him, I find him and I find his word and I find his will and I take it in and I live it out. There, there's a dynamic transformational process that goes on once real conversion starts. If I've just said a silly prayer asking Jesus into my heart so I can escape hell and go to heaven, well then, I'm just kidding myself. I'm, I'm, I just want to ask you clear. Everybody's following somebody. We're either following ourselves in most cases or we're following Jesus. Who are you really following? Are you converted? Who are you following? Same question. That's where we start. Secondly, what level of moral motivation is actually ruling in you? You can go back. You can look at them again. And if you're at one of the first four, don't feel bad as long as you've actually trusted Christ and you are his follower. It's okay. We, we don't get angry at our children when they're learning to walk and they fall down. We're thrilled. We just keep urging them on. You might just still be a babe in Christ. That's okay. Keep moving. Keep growing. That, that's all God wants you to do. He, he'll bring you to the place 
where love and principle and being a friend of God will motivate you. But you need to keep moving. Don't get down on yourself. Don't get discouraged. God's not angry at you. He, he's drawing you forward. You're, you may be at the level that you're supposed to be. You need to develop. You need to grow. Last question. How can, some of you are wondering, how can I go from levels one through four to the more mature levels of motivation? Is it possible, Randy, to do that? Yeah, really quickly it can be done. It has to be worked at to continue, but it comes to this. It's just this simple. Once you really, truly believe that Jesus Christ is utterly, sacrificially devoted to your good. He knows what's best and wants what's best. He's demonstrated his sacrificial love by dying on the cross to scream at us, trust me, I love you. Don't worry about your sins. They're forgiven. Don't worry about trying to earn eternal life. I'll give it to you as a gift, but you got to trust me. You just got to be what you were meant to be. You were always meant to be a being that lives in trust with me, your creator. So, it's just that simple to jump levels. Once you become convinced of the goodness of God, you will always throw away your will and desires when his will and his desires are different. And you'll start to be motivated on that level of love for others, God's principle, and just because I'm a friend of God. So if you're maybe stuck and you have been stuck for a long time, maybe this can give you a clue as to how you might get yourself actually becoming a different person from the inside out. The person we are in secret, folks, that's the person we are. God looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for moments where we can get close enough to you and your truth that it starts to really sink in, really penetrate us. We start to see what matters in life, what doesn't matter, uh, this is one of these moments. May your spirit continue to speak to each of us in just the way we need to be spoken to. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.